Each episode, we bring you B2B leaders to learn about their successes, fouls, and what's working for them in the market. If you enjoy the show, please consider giving us a five-star rating on Apple and Spotify and share this podcast with a friend. That's enough from me. Let's dive right in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode. I'm Shaheen Hoda with X-Growth, and today I'm talking to Daniel Priestley, co-founder of ScoreApp, about how B2B marketers can create campaigns that will generate huge interest from their target audience, sustain that interest, and then turn it into business metrics. On that note, let's dive in. Daniel, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. And I'm, I'm super excited for, uh, for our conversation. Um, you, uh, you wrote a whole book called Oversubscribed. And the, the, the premise of that is, you know, how do you create products and services that that is really not only needed, but but creates that buzz and creates that uh, that that movement in the market. But I'd love to unpack that with yourself in terms of what do you mean by oversubscribe? When you use the term oversubscribe, what, what does that what does that mean? What I'm talking about is the phenomenon where uh, demand and supply tension comes comes up. And demand and supply tension happens when there's limited supply of something and there's uh, excessive demand. So if there's a restaurant and it has 50 seats and there's 500 people who want to go to the restaurant that night, right, that's demand and supply tension. So we see demand and supply tension in the physical world, but we're living in a digital world and a digital economy where theoretically things can be in unlimited supply. And when something's in unlimited supply, it almost doesn't matter what that thing is, it will fall to zero. The price will always go to zero. The reason Google Maps is free is because they can do it in unlimited supply. Uh, Google Search is free because they can do it in unlimited supply. But the top three results on a Google Search are very limited, so therefore they're um, valuable and you can charge for them. But essentially, the very tricky thing for most people at the moment is to build something that's digital and have the price not fall to zero in some way. So market forces are market forces and they, they tend to be consistent. I'll give you a quick example just to illustrate the point. If profit was handed out fairly, you would imagine that airlines would be highly profitable because airlines have to get so much right. Customer service and uh, innovation and safety and all, all of these things that they do with, you know, uh, huge capital risk and uh, you know massive amounts of people that are required. So you would think that airlines would be massively profitable because it's such a hard business. Uh, but we know that they've got typically six to twelve percent as their you know gross margins. If profit was handed out fairly, you'd imagine that Rolex is not very profitable because it hasn't really innovated. It has a very limited range of watches. Those Rolexes haven't really changed much in fifty years. And it's a pretty simple thing to copy. Like there are plenty of people who copy it really, really well uh, and sell it for just a few hundred dollars. So why on earth would people be paying $15,000 for a real Rolex? And the reason is very simply, there's more demand than supply. They, they limit supply. They have an official capacity. They stick to their official capacity. And then they have millions of people who apply, uh, literally apply and join waiting lists to, to get themselves a Rolex. So Rolex is massively profitable, gross margins of like 80-90%, and it's not fair, right? But that's that's the law of demand and supply. I love it. I love it. Let's let's dive in and talk about some of the some of the core principles and pillars behind the concept of of oversubscribe, right? So what are what are some of the some of the key components for creating 
oversubscription in uh and and you know I, i'm using oversubscription but really creating that demand for whatever it is that you're putting out in the market what are some of the key components behind creating that so the first component is to set what i would call official capacity and official capacity is essentially you look at your 12 month period ahead and you say how many people can we absolutely delight like if we have to deliver remarkable standout product service um, packages, offers, if we have to really look after our clients and do it in a way that, that leaves them wanting to talk to their friends about us, what would, what would be the upper limit on that? So how many could we do that for? Now, some digital businesses, they, they genuinely say, well, it's unlimited. Well, it might be unlimited on the online front, but is it unlimited on the customer service and onboarding? Is it unlimited at every single point of the business? And you've got to try and find the constraint and then build the official capacity around that constraint. So let's say you've got official capacity that, you know, let's say you're an agency and you can take on 50 clients per year. So once you know your, your official capacity, what we then do is we market for signaled interest. Now, we don't market for sales. We market for signaled interest. So signaled interest is essentially anyone who is waving their hand saying, I'd be interested in, in being a, a customer. Now, I'll give you some examples. A waiting list is signaled interest. Joining a community where the intent of the community is essentially around what it is that you do. Attending an event is signaled interest. So if I run an event for uh, 500 people and I've got 50 client spots available and there's 500 you know, industry people in, in attendance. So we're doing something that is essentially marketing for a signal, not a sale. And it's really important to market for signals, not sales there comes a point where your official capacity is outstripped by signals 10 to 1. So let's say you've got 50 customers that you can take on all year and you've got 500 people signaling their interest in uh, in taking those spots. That creates demand and supply tension, especially if, they're, if they can see, <laughs> if it's transparent. So when you see a lineup out the front of a restaurant, you know the restaurant must be good. If you attend an event with 500 people in the, in the audience, you know that that agency must be doing something right. So you're essentially trying to create uh, some marker of demand and supply tension. And, and, and basically, that's the basics of it. The basics of the campaign is to get 10 times more signaled interest compared to the official capacity of the business so that you know that you're in a position of being oversubscribed. You can pick and choose the right clients. Uh, you can be very fussy as to who you take on board. And you can choose from those signaling interest who you want to work with. That's, I mean, that's a, that's an amazing place to be. How would you deal with? So, hey, we could do we could do only fifty customers, but we can always hire, and we can always hire more if we're a SaaS business. We can always hire more customer service people. We can always, you know, for service based whoever's doing the service. What about that con? What 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 about? that point of view that hey we could just hire and we could do yeah we could do 50 now but we could really hire and do 70 and 80 customers and so on and so forth what what about that that would be a change to official capacity and you would not do that change and you, you wouldn't announce that change until such time as you are oversubscribed so for example you need to get to a place where genuinely you're telling people i can't take you on for another three months we've got plenty of clients and we've got plenty of people on the waiting list Unfortunately, we'll have to put you on the waiting list and it'll probably be three to six months before we can take you on as a client. So if you can genuinely get to the point where people are feeling frustrated that they're missing out, 
You can then go back to your waiting list and say, um, what we're going to be doing is hiring some great people. It takes time to hire great people, but we will be able to take on board an extra 20 clients in June. If you'd like to go ahead, just let us know that you do want to go ahead uh, because it'll, you know, we, we do have a waiting list, but ultimately we're going to be hiring someone. One of the things that's really powerful is to, is to let customers know what goes into creating additional capacity. So you might say, for us, we're extremely fussy about who we bring into the team and our hiring process is normally three months and then it's normally three months of training and onboarding with existing clients before we can then have additional capacity. So uh, it's going to be six months before we can uh, take on more clients, but you know that's why we're starting the waiting list now. Got it, got it. I mean, that's a, um, yeah, that's an awesome approach. Let me, let's, let's dive into where people go wrong when they're trying to create demand, when they're trying to create an oversubscribed model. What, what have you seen? Tell us about the war stories. Well, well the, the number one thing where people go wrong is, let me give you two. The, the number one is trying to market for sales, not signals. So when you market for sales, you're trying to sign clients up. You're trying to get them to commit to, to buying. When you market for signals, you're only trying to get them to commit to signaling that they would like to buy if they could. So it's a little bit different. It's a slightly nuanced approach, but essentially it makes all the difference. When I go out to a client and I say, are you ready to start? We're really, we're really looking forward to taking you on. That creates uh, a dynamic where you've got capacity that needs to be filled and they could potentially you know, help you out by, by buying from you. And that creates a downward spiral of price competition and, and all of those sorts of things. When you market for signals, what you're doing is building a marketplace first. You're building an interested audience first. And then they can see that there's an interested audience. And then you're slowly releasing official capacity. That creates demand and supply tension the other way around. So marketing for signals is, is the most important thing rather than marketing for sales. And, and everyone gets that wrong. So, you know, most people are out there trying to make sales and you've got to switch it around and, and just put that extra step in place to build tension first. So that would be that would be number one. Number two is the idea of we can we can take on anyone and everyone and, and we just, you know, we're just looking for any clients that have a checkbook, that have a credit card, like we just will take on anyone. So your value is very, very high to a small number of people, and then it diminishes significantly depending on who you're talking to. So, for example, there's a woman called Esther Perel. She's a couples therapist. She's been a TED Talk, you know, regular uh, TED speaker. She's written a book and New York Times bestselling author. Now, she charges something like quarter of a million dollars if you want to have her as your couples therapist. And the people who pay that think that it's cheap. And the reason they think it's cheap is because they're billionaires who are on the verge of a divorce. And for them, quarter of a million dollars, if they can get their marriage back on the rails and, and avoid millions of dollars in legal fees and capital destruction, you know, it, it's essentially it's going to save them millions to tens of millions if, if they can reconcile their differences. So dealing with someone who is a specialist in uh, row, you know, millionaire couples who are, who are on, the, on the rocks if they can work with her, then there's a huge return on investment for them. Now, if I go and stop someone down on the street and say, would you pay 99% discount, two and a half thousand for couples therapy? A lot of people would say no. If I said 90% discount, 
you know, 25,000 for couples therapy, almost everyone would say no. So there's a tiny, tiny percentage of people who think what she does is extremely highly valuable. And then there's a cliff of people who say it's, it's not even, I wouldn't even do it 90% off. So a massive mistake people make is not being clear who has the most to gain from what you do, like, like exclusively getting laser focused on the types of clients who have the most to gain from working with you. I want to go back to the first mistake that you mentioned, where you said people market for sales and not for signals. How does that transition happen? Because obviously, you know, you are marketing for signals, but your ultimate goal is the sale. You, you want the business to grow. You want to be able to charge higher. You want to get, get them to turn into a sale. How does, tell, tell me a little bit about how to transition from a signal to a sale happens because I know a lot of people have issues with that, right? Where we, they're, they're in, in marketing lingo, they say, Hey, we got a top of the funnel, heavy top of the funnel and nothing trickles down. Right. What are you, what are your thoughts on that? The best way to transition is what I call a spotlight event. And a spotlight event is where you put on a special event and you have guest speakers, you have guest pre- presenters, you have something special, some draw card that makes it exciting to come along to that event. And when I say an event, it could be an online event. It could be like Zoom or it could be, uh, you know, physical event. But ultimately, you need an event. You need a, a draw card and you need a reason for people to suddenly show up all at once. Now, when you put on that spotlight event, at that event, you're going to do a launch and you're going to tell people that we have an official capacity and that we, uh, if you're interested in starting with this at some point in three to six months, could you just let us know that you're interested uh, in some way? So you're inviting for a, you're, you're asking people for a signal of interest, and you're telling people that the signal of interest may or may not go ahead, and you know we're we're going to be uh, launching this thing three to six months into the future, so you can you know signal your interest, uh, and you can there's no commitment really. It's just a soft signal of interest. Now at that point, what you're really looking for is for people to get a sense that oh wow, a lot of people want to work with with them, right? I've just turned up to a spotlight event. There's hundreds of people in attendance and they've invited a signal of interest. Uh, would you like to work with us at some point in the future? And lots of people are saying, yep, I do want to work with this company and I've, you know, I'm happy to fill in the form or, or, or submit, you know, a registration of interest form or something like that. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to have a turning point where we we sell to people one at a time and they've got the power and we're, you know, got our little begging bowl out there and you're trying to flip it where it's like there's one of us and there's lots of you uh, and that's the flipping point right and you're trying to and, you, and you're trying to think three to six months out so you're trying to change the game over the next three to six months so essentially you're you know you're, you're making you're thinking more longer time horizon than most companies take an example elon musk doesn't build a factory and then try and sell the cars he stands on a stage and he says, this is a weird looking thing called a cyber truck and it's not going to be available for the next three years. We haven't even built the factory, but we are going to have this thing available and it's going to be really strange and you've never seen anything like it. And if you're interested in this, put down a hundred dollar deposit and, uh, and, and then we'll, what we'll do is we'll just hold you on our list when we do have a factory. For a hundred dollars, you've, you've, you've got a spot on the list. Now, they sold a million $100 deposits. So he went out and essentially collected a million signals of interest. As a result of having a million 
deposits, they were able to raise all the capital they needed for building a factory. They build the factory and then they start fulfilling on those um, on those orders. So that's a, a classic example. The guy's thinking three years into the future. He's getting the signals of interest early and then he can use that to, to build the capacity for, for the Cybertrucks. So what he did there was a spotlight event. He, he created a draw card, a reason to show up. He created a, a moment for the audience to get excited and he invited people to signal their interest. I love that. I love that. And uh, you know, that, that my, my next question that I want to ask you is examples, right? Like how, where have you seen this work really well? And I think, you know, the, the, the Tesla example is just such a, it is probably the creme de la creme of examples at the very top of the uh, top of the list. Is there, is there anything else that comes to mind that, you know, you think people can, can, can look at and, and really learn from it? There's lots of examples and the best examples are actually small business examples. So, you know, Sebastian Bates is a um, martial arts entrepreneur. He's got an incredible martial arts academy uh, in the UK and in the Middle East. And he applied the oversubscribe model that before they even open a new studio, they've got parents applying and signaling that they want their kids to go to this uh, martial arts academy. And they tell the parents it's going to be nine months or 12 months before they actually open the venue. Uh, and they run an entire campaign around signaled interest. They get uh, 10 to 1. So if they want 200 students, they get 2,000 parents filling in uh, the online form to, to, to do that. They're one of the most profitable and successful martial arts businesses in the Middle East. And they're only, they've only been there for, I think, three or four years. When I met Sebastian, he had one martial arts school here in the UK and they were constantly trying to make sales. And then as soon as he flipped it to this signals first, then sales model, you know, he oversubscribed his UK business and then he, you know, uh, oversubscribed the Middle East without having actually set up there. And, you know, that's, that's a cool example. I've worked with personal trainers where um, personal trainer will say, we're going to do a body transformation. It's an intensive three months for, it's, it's for executives. It's for men who uh, work in really great executive roles, but they've let their body suffer as a result. And they want to do an intensive three month turnaround on that. And we're going to do that with 10 men. Would you be interested? And they like, you know, the personal trainer run an event, have a, have a cocktail party, do a launch, have a hundred people signal interest for 10 spots. You know, so big businesses, small businesses, we've, we've actually seen great examples all, all the way along. I love it. From Tesla to personal training, where is a good place for people to start with, uh, with, 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 with a concept like this? Well, the, the, here's, the, here's a great place to start. The first one is sit down with the team and figure out official capacity. What, what can we do in the next 12 months? If, and, and the rule is we have to do it really well. Right, so all of these oversubscribed businesses, the, the the underlying principle is that they're amazing at what they do. Right, they focus on doing it really well. So, if you go to an oversubscribed restaurant, once you get a seat at the table, they really look after you. Right, it's a Michelin star experience, and it's a it's an exceptional experience. They're not cramming people into the restaurant. Uh, they're happy to let people miss out so that they can protect the experience. So the first one is if we were protecting a high level experience, how many could we do that for over the next uh, 12 months? And then what you want to do as a starting point is maybe break that up into 40 weeks and do some mini campaigns and say, all right, micro campaign, we're going to do a little weekly 
session. We're going to announce to people that we um, that we have official capacity for the year of this, and that we're just out there talking to people. And would they be interested in signalling their interest uh, in, in 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 having uh, the opportunity to be a client? So th- those are some of the first early stage approaches. One of the things that I really encourage people to do is 12-month campaign planning. So really knowing in advance, what's the plan for the next 12 months? What spotlight events are we going to run? What weekly activities are we, are we going to do? What's our big message to market going to be for the next 12 months? So doing the, doing the planning session so that you're deliberately getting yourself oversubscribed as well. So those are some of the, the key things. And then building some digital assets that help you to get oversubscribed. So any digital asset that scales is a terrible product to sell like a YouTube channel, you know, people are not going to pay to watch your YouTube videos. They're not going to pay to listen to your podcasts. But the purpose of those digital assets is that enough people start seeing your stuff and hearing your stuff that they're happy to signal interest in what you actually do. So the people who make the most money on podcasts and YouTube channels, that's not their business. It, you know, it's just it, they've got the podcast sitting out there. Thousands of people engage with that. And then their actual business becomes oversubscribed as a result so digital assets are very powerful as a way of building uh, you know a trail of breadcrumbs that leads back to uh, a signal of interest got it a lot of people love tactics as well okay so give me some tactics i know i mean you and the team also run a company called score app right and you also play in this space. So, so I, I mean, I'd love to hear about tactics. And, and again, I, usually when we do these things, people love love tactics. So give us a little bit of a glimpse of that as well. Well, a tactic is a scorecard. In 2013, I was running big events all over the world, 500-person events. We were launching our business in, in eight cities around the world, and, uh, and we would do regular big spotlight events. But I was having my first child in 2014, and I was really terrified that I'd built a business that was very suitable for a bachelor, but not very suitable for someone with a young family. And, you know, we were, we were set up in Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Singapore, London, Birmingham, uh, Tampa, Florida, Toronto. Like we were just getting set up in all these cities around the world, running big events around the world. And I was, as a single bachelor, I was loving flying around, speaking at all these kind of events. I didn't have to worry about any, any, I was quite happy living out of suitcases. I launched an online scorecard in 2014 and it was called the Key Person of Influence Scorecard. We took the content from the event and essentially allowed people to do a self-assessment around you know, whether they're a key person of influence in their industry and whether they can become more influential. 90,000 people took the scorecard. It was a very, you know, really cool campaign because we had people just telling us so much information about themselves by answering a set of questions and doing the self-assessment. They're, you know, some of the questions are things like, you know, do you clearly uh, have a value proposition and have you got products and services that you can sell internationally and have you raised money for your venture? And there's all these kind of questions that, are, that people are answering. And then at the end, they get a score and they get a, a report card or a scorecard as to how they're doing. And um, it just basically completely eliminated the need for us to run events if we didn't want to, because we had 90,000 people effectively signaling interest by taking a self-assessment. It was so effective that uh, basically my client said, hey, I would like to have one of those scorecards as well. Can I do one for my business? Can I do a fitness scorecard? Can I do a a relationship scorecard? Can I do a digital marketing scorecard? Uh, So we started setting those up. I own an agency and we started using the agency to set them up. 
And then we thought, wait a second, we could build a platform and make this super easy for people to set themselves up and uh, they can just log in and create their own self-assessment. So Score App was born in 2020. It's become a business now that has 2,000 clients that are, that are using scorecard marketing as a, as a way of generating signaled interest for their business. So tactical, set up an online self-assessment. Let your clients self-assess as to whether they would make a great client, right? Let them self-assess as to whether they... Uh, you know, have have room to grow if they've got things to, to do. So for example, if you're a digital marketing agency, do a digital marketing checklist or a digital marketing quiz or a digital marketing scorecard, let it sit there on your website and let people fill it in so that they can answer 40 questions or 20 questions, yes or no, simple yes or no questions, and then get a score and a report. And then that report is a custom report with custom recommendations and, uh, you know, essentially that creates demand and supply tension. Uh, when five to 10 of those are coming in every day, you really quickly get a sense that you can pick and choose who you want to work with. Because not only are you getting name and email address and location, you're getting 30, 40 bits of information about every single person. You can literally zoom into the data and say, I want to work with that person because they've got so much room to grow um, and they've got a budget. So, yeah, so, so the online self-assessment is just awesome for getting clients to effectively self-qualify and tactically, you know, I think it's going to be a huge thing. If you look at 99% of websites right now, it's all broadcast. It's just telling people this is who we are and why we're amazing, but there's absolutely no way for a customer to tell you back why they think they should work with you. There's no self-qualifying Thing. There's no data collection point. It's just purely and simply check us out. We're amazing. If you can flip the script on that, if you can say, why don't you tell us about yourself? Then you're going to essentially, you know, be aligning yourself to the customer's needs and wants. You have a winner on your hand. All right. I love it. I love it. Okay. Now, before we wrap up, Daniel, I have a couple of questions that I want to go through. A couple of rapid fire questions I want to, I want to ask you, right? We've got four of them. Okay. So, cool. uh, so, so let's 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 smash through them. The first one is, what is what is one resource? It could be a book, a blog, a podcast, a talk, whatever it is, that has fundamentally changed the way you you work or live. So, I would say the biggest resource is having an executive assistant for me. And I've started a lot of different businesses, and one of my very first hires is is an executive assistant. Scheduling for me is kryptonite. I hate scheduling. Having someone who can find stuff, organize stuff. Uh, and I'm, I'm talking, by the way, I'm talking about a really great executive assistant, someone who is not waiting for me to give them little tasks. I'm talking about someone who's almost a COO, almost a general manager, like someone who is a right arm for getting things done, that we talk regularly and we strategize regularly and uh, we play just different roles. So in the launch phase of, of, of every business that I've worked on, one of the first people that I get is, is a great executive assistant. Um, I don't know if that, if you, if you, if that's what you meant by a resource, like it's a, it's obviously it's a, it's someone to, 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 um, to work with, but, uh, I, th- I think that's something that I couldn't live without now. I think, I think it, it, it sounds like it's definitely fundamentally changed the way you work or live. So that I think, I, I think that qualifies. So you, you have been, you, you've done work in B2B and B2C world, right? 
But if you were going to give one piece of advice to B2B marketers and, and even maybe salespeople, people in the B2B space, what would that be? Well, it's like we were talking about before we started the podcast and I was saying, don't be busy, be building something. And there's a big difference between being busy and being busy building something. And a lot of phenomenally talented people are really busy, but 10 years from now, they won't have a lot to show for it. They, they won't have actually built something. You know, I use the example that you could be driving Uber 16 hours a day, working really hard, putting in the hours or you could be a personal trainer in the gym from five o'clock in the morning till nine o'clock at night lifting weights with people, but you're not building something. And there's a big fundamental difference. You've got to be building something. The, the, the fundamental asset in the economy right now is intellectual property, media, and software. So if you can't show at the end of a year that you've developed a significant library of intellectual property and media, and you've translated that into some form of code, like it's, so, it's now software-based, you're probably not building something, right? And I know that's a horrible thing to say, but if you look back on your last 12 months and say, what is the software I developed? What is the media assets that I've created, the, long, the long-term evergreen media assets? And what is the intellectual property library that I developed? If you can't answer those questions really clearly, then you've got to stop kidding yourself because your time is better spent being busy. I, I have no, nothing, there's nothing wrong with being busy i especially if you don't have little kids like i personally i loved doing 60 hour weeks when when i was single i loved you know being always on the go i was massively enjoying working seven days a week in many cases because because for me work was running events and traveling and showing up and meeting interesting people so it didn't feel like work but i was doing crazy hours and I loved it and I wouldn't change it at all. And I didn't need work-life balance. I was completely fulfilled with belligerent myopic focus. And but the, the, there were times in my life where I was busy doing that and I was building something. Uh, and there were times in my life where I was really busy like that and I wasn't building something. My goodness, if I had have just been busy building something, it would have been a very different outcome. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just applying that criteria. Got it. Question number three is, who are some of the influencers that you follow? I'm a big fan of biographies. I love the idea that you can kind of step into someone's shoes uh, and live their life, you know, in a matter of hours. And, and I, I just love biographies. And I feel like biographies are a great way to kind of spark insights, you know, lateral insights. I love books that, that teach. I love books that actually explicitly teach things, but I also love books that... Um, that, that kind of leave it to your imagination to what you want to get out of that particular story, which is, which is kind of nice as well. Anything comes to mind? The best names of people that you probably haven't heard of, the best resources are. I, I really want to know what's going on behind the scenes, right? So from running big events in my early start of my career, there's an extremely big difference between what the audience sees and what happens behind the curtain, what happens behind the scenes. And there's, you know, for the audience, it's a it's a short, sharp, exciting burst of interesting insights and entertainment and all this sort of stuff. For the behind the scenes, it's a three month build up, and there's all this stuff that happens. So for me, it's really critically important to get behind the scenes on people on on what what really goes on. So I've got a few friends of mine who are, who are billionaire entrepreneurs, and you know, the best the best exciting thing is where you actually get a chance to hear the story behind the story, and where you you kind of you're not hearing the polished version. You're, you're kind of seeing what, what goes on behind the scenes. I, I will also say this. 
I truly honestly believe that the book that changes your life is the one you write, not the one you read. And I really think there's something about writing or creating rather than consuming uh, that is where all the learnings actually happen. So we think about we need to consume the right stuff. And the truth is we need to create the right stuff. So, you know, if you've got time to sit and watch YouTube videos, create YouTube videos. If you've got time to listen to podcasts, go and record your own podcast. If you've got time to read a book, go and write a book. The, the lessons and the learnings that come out of that process are going to be far greater because they're yours. They're, they literally, they're perfectly aligned to your life and what you do. So what you're doing is dusting off potential intellectual property and turning it into actual intellectual property. So, you know, I'm a big believer that in the world that we're in, uh, you, you're just far better off creating something than consuming something. Love it. Love it. Unconventional answer. I love it. All right. Last one, Daniel, is what's something that excites you today? Uh, the times that we're living in are extremely exciting in terms of we, we live in a world where, uh, you know, we're going through a transition of humanity. We're coming out of the industrial age and into whatever comes next. And there's never been a time in history where, you know, uh, anyone with a very small budget, extremely small budget, can reach a global audience, can have a global team, can create and innovate a, a technology product, you know, can develop media and software and intellectual property and scale that out to a global audience. So these times that we're in, I, I feel like the, these are just absolutely incredible times. It's almost like a renaissance is happening around us. You know, we don't, we do not want to become complacent to that. The, the the fact that, you know, you can always dwell upon the fact that, oh, houses are really expensive and well, generation don't get to buy houses. Okay, you don't get to buy houses, but you get to do startups. You get to, you know, never before in history has someone born in an ordinary family been able to start a company and grow a company to a global business. So forget about houses and go with what, what the opportunity is of the moment you know, this is a, a magical revolution that's taking place. And, you know, there's always going to be something you can complain about and say, oh, I wish it was like it was for my grandparents now that it's 2020 and obvious. Uh, it's like, no, no, no. What's obvious now is that we have the ability to scale a message or a product or an idea or a team uh, or a movement in, into a global marketplace and, and really impact change. Uh, so for me, it's just the excitement of the times that we're in and, and never to lose sight of that perspective that a hundred years from now, they're going to study this particular moment. Daniel, I, I love it. And, uh, and this has been a pretty awesome conversation and, uh, and a lot of, a lot of golden insights that you've dropped throughout the, the podcast. So I, I, I really appreciate it. And, and again, Thank you so much for uh, for coming on the podcast and, uh, and, and looking forward to chatting with you more. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. This episode of Growth Colony was produced by Alexander Hipwell. It was edited by Dave Semedo with additional editing and music arrangement also by Alexander Hipwell. Special thanks to Tina Wabe and Rod Hoda. We couldn't make this show without you. The show is hosted by Shaheen Hoda. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. And maybe even share the pod with a friend if you loved it that much. Thanks again for all the support and looking forward to seeing you again in the next one.